Well, you can turn with your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 3. Lord willing, in a couple weeks' time, we will probably start and finish the book of 2 John, just because it's so short. I'm just kidding. I don't know how long it's going to take to go through it. Uh, But it is the shortest book, so uh, we'll go through 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and then we're going to start the Gospel of Luke. Uh, But today we're going to look at Titus chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 4 through 8 this morning. Uh, But I will begin reading at verse 1 to set the context. This is the third of the pastoral epistles. Uh, Probably good to go through the pastoral epistles almost every five years. But uh, we'll just look at chapter 3. So we'll begin reading at verse 1. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, we are thankful for the so great salvation we have in Christ. Thank you again for all the benefits. Thank you for the plan of the Father, the accomplishment of the Son, and the application of the Holy Spirit. We're thankful you, our triune God, is the one who decreed to save sinners like us. Thank you that we see that execution in time and space and the accomplishment of Christ. And we're thankful that we continue to see that execution in the salvation of sinners, in the sanctification of your people. We're thankful that even now we see your plan unfolding. And so we ask and pray that we would be attentive to what you have to us for us this morning, that we would be awake to what you have to say to us this morning. And we know that we need your spirit from on high to give us that illumination. And so we pray that today would be a great day of salvation for those that do not know you. We pray that today would be a day of uplifting and encouragement for those that need it, and perhaps even a day of rebuke for those that need to be rebuked as well. Thank you that you are kind when you do so. And so we are thankful we can come and hear your word. We can come and read your word. And we ask that you be with us now by your spirit as the word goes forth. And we pray in all these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, I have a confession. Sometimes I forget Bible passages that I shouldn't. Titus chapter 3 is one of those passages that we should never forget. It is filled with lots of blessing, filled with lots of theology, filled with lots of application. We see the plan of God and his love towards sinners. We see the accomplishment of this in Christ. We see the power of the Spirit. All these things are present throughout the book of Titus, but also are present here in Titus chapter 3. And not only is it the plan of the triune God that we see here, it's also the application for us. 
What is it that our triune God does for us? What is our need? What is our problem? And we have many problems. We have many things. We have many needs. And thankfully, we have a God who supplies all that we need. Christ's work is sufficient. And thankfully, even though he's at the right hand of God the Father, he still applies those blessed benefits for people like us. And that's Paul's purpose in chapter 3. It's to remind the Cretans, those who lived on Crete, and remind us of God's grace toward us that we might then be gracious toward others. Now, the whole point of the book of Titus is to set things in order. The church was disorganized on the island of Crete. There's problems that have arisen in that church. So Paul wants to organize it. He organizes it with elders. He organizes it with members and he organizes it around the gospel of free and sovereign grace. And so that's why we teach the importance of doctrine, and then we adorn that doctrine with the life in which we live. As the gospel goes forward, as God's people hear the word of God and are encouraged and fed and uplifted by the scriptures, we can then live a life, uh, not perfectly, but a life that is pleasing to God most high. Now, the problem that we can see in these verses is, I think, pretty clear. And the problem is when we think we are righteous and we are righteous in and of ourselves. Ever since the fall, man thinks he is righteous in his own way. Man thinks that he has good standing before God. You ask a sinner on the street and say, do you think you're going to go to heaven? They'll say, yeah, because I think I'm a pretty good person. But as the Bible says, there is no one righteous No, not one. And that is what Paul highlights. Not according to righteousness, but God who is merciful, God who is gracious. He is the one who saved us. And even as we teach right doctrine that leads to right practice, poor doctrine, a poor understanding of who God is, a poor understanding of what we were not in Christ, also leads to poor treatment of others. Again, doctrine and practice go hand in hand, whether it's true or whether it is false. And again, there were men who were threatening the church in Crete, threatening the church there. And so Paul writes to deal with them. And he does talk about rebuking them. He does talk about their problems and the elders dealing with the insubordinate in chapter 1. But he also corrects, wants to correct it and encourage the brethren there with the truth of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And so in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 8, Paul gives the reason why they must be humbled towards others. We cannot forget that the overarching purpose of this section is exhortation, to be humble towards others, to show humility to all men. And one of the reasons for that is because of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. There is the indicative, the truth of what God has done, and that then leads to the imperative, what we ought to do in light of what God has done for us. But let's just consider what God has done for us first. And so we'll look at what God has done for us, how he saved us under two headings. The first heading is going to be who saved us in verses 4 through 6. And secondly, we'll see what we receive in verses 7 and 8. So who saved us? Verses 4 through 6. And then we'll see what we receive in verses 7 and 8. So let's first look at who saved us in verses 4 through 6. And in verse 4, we see God's love appearing. 
Now again, the context, it's treating all men with humility, considering all men, considering others better than ourselves. And so that's the main exhortation in verses one and two. But then in verse three, he gives the first reason for why we ought to be kind and gracious and considerate to all men. And the first reason is what we once were. When we were born in sin, before Christ saved us, we see in verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hating, uh, hateful and hating one another. We engage in all of those things, and sometimes there's unfortunately still the remnants of those things as we still have remaining corruption, but our life was once characterized by all of these things. So here's what we once were. Here's how vile we once were, and so we ought to be gracious to those who are in that state because we were once in that very state. So then that's the first reason for why we ought to be gracious and be humble towards others. And then the second reason is where we get to verse 4, and this leads into the graciousness of God towards uh, uh, people like us. The second reason is God's salvation. The basis for our kindness towards others, the base for our treatment of others, is because of what God has done for us. And he's already talked about that already in chapter 11, uh, sorry, chapter 11, chapter 2, verse 11, where he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. There is the truth and what it teaches us and then how we ought to live in light of that very truth. And really in chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, we see how we live in light of the first appearing of Christ but then we also live in light of the second coming of Christ. And in fact, the first and second coming go hand in hand. Here's what Jesus has done. Here's how we ought to live. Jesus is going to come, so we ought to be patient as we await his coming. The life that we live is trained by grace. The life that we live in this world is because of the grace of God toward sinners like us. So verse 4, we see God's love. We know that God is love, and we see God's love toward us in what he does for us. He is love, but then we see uh, his love manifested to us in his operations or his works. And so in verse 4, we see, when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. We see in that first word, when the kindness highlights something about who God is, it highlights something about what God is, that God is goodness itself. God, God's goodness is his essence. You and I can be good. You and I can do good. But God is good. That is the difference between us and God. God is goodness itself. And we see him doing good by considering others, by doing various things toward this fallen world. And so we see when the, even not just the fallen world, but him creating the world, we see his goodness to create this world. Remember, God does not need anything from you and I. God does not need anything from us. God, is ple God is, has perfect life in himself. Our life is derived from him. God has goodness in himself because he is goodness itself. Our goodness is derived from him. 
So he's drawing out the goodness of God because God is love to an undeserving people. So we see he is goodness, this uh, kindness. This is who he is. This is what he is. When the kindness, then we transition to what God does for us, the love of God toward man. It's actually where we get the word philanthropy. This is where we get that word for the love of man. God demonstrates his love towards sinners by sending forth his son. That is what it, what it means when he highlights God, our savior toward man appearing. How does God show? How does God operate? How does God demonstrate his love toward man? As we saw in 1 John, it is the sending forth of the son. We spent all of December doing a lot of theology, thinking about who the son is, but this is where it all this is where we get to the application. This is where we get to what the son has done for us. What God has done for us. The one who is God took on a human nature. When we read in Philippians and talk about the emptying in the book of Philippians, he doesn't empty himself of any attributes. The incarnation is the emptying, dear brethren. The fact that the one who is God, the one who has perfect life in himself would be born in a manger, would be born in this world and suffer for us. This is where we see God's goodness. This is where we see the mystery revealed and we see that all for us to glorify God, but it is for us, God our Savior. Now this is going to be repeated talking about Christ as God. It's also used in chapter 2, verse 13, to talk about our God, uh, uh, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, highlighting the fact that Jesus is very God. He is the one who saves us, but here we're certainly speaking in that triune way, in the sense the Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. Uh, so we God, our Savior, uh, the, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, it is in the one who is the son. So we see this appearing. This is that first coming. Where do we see God's love? It is the incarnation as the son takes on that human nature. It's manifested in Jesus Christ. It is where our salvation lies. It lies in Jesus Christ. And so he appears. He has come. He took on that human nature for wretched people like us. So we see God's love in the accomplishment of the work of Christ. This world is filled with many needy sinners. This world is filled with pride and arrogance. And yet we have one who not only was born, but why was he born? According to Philippians 2, it was so that he would die. And it was so that he would die in a certain way, that he would die in the stead of sinners, that he would become obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. He sacrificed. He demonstrated his humility by taking on a human nature and dying in the way that he did. We wouldn't do that for our friends, would we? We wouldn't be as kind and as humble towards others as we should be because we're so filled with pride still, dear brethren. And yet God is pleased to save sinners in the assuming of a human nature by the Son. His love, when, a certain time, when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared, he's still qualifying, by the way, the main verb or the main sentence or the main uh, clause is, he saved us. We're just driving to that point. 
He saved us is the main point. We're just still getting to all of the, to that point. He's qualifying when, what time, what happened, who is God? And then we see in verses five and six, it is again for us, what God has done, but we see this further explain what it means to be for us. Verse five, not by works of righteousness we have done. I mean, is there any clearer passage that just explains that? Not by works of righteousness that we have done. Salvation has nothing to do with you and I. The salvation that we receive, the righteousness that we have, has nothing to do with you and I. It has everything to do with what the Savior has done. And certainly Paul has that Pauline understanding of righteousness, this this, uh, this idea that is connected with the keeping of the law, the right standing before God based upon that law, we see that our works do not merit anything. Our works do not merit God's love. Our works do not merit salvation. But God is pleased to save us. When the love of God appeared, not by works of righteousness that we have done, because let's be honest, we don't have any. As the Bible says, not in Christ, our, work, our righteousness is like filthy rags. We are filled with self-righteousness. We are filled with self-promotion. Even when we do something good, let's be honest, there's always just a hint of pride. Even as the people of God, again, we're not perfect on this side of heaven. Everything we do is always filled with a little hint of pride, isn't it? And we, that's why we can thank God that all of our sins are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ, because he is generous, because he is good, because we see his love towards man, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, which is what the false teachers were teaching. They were teaching you could earn your salvation. You could engage in works righteousness and do them. But Paul is saying not at, saying not at all. If I get my merds wixed, I did a lot yesterday with moving. Uh, the, thank you again to all that helped uh, with that. We walked uh, a lot. So thank you again for that. So just, just, just bear with me today. Uh, so, but according to notice, we transitioned again, further talking about what God does. Not by works we have done, but according to his mercy. When we consider the idea of mercy, it is the idea of dispelling a misery, removing some misery from the person who is in need. God sees our need and we see his mercy by doing what? Removing our misery, <laughs> removing our pain, removing our sorrow. He dispels that in Christ. Not only is he gracious to give us good things, but he sees our plight. He knows our frame. He knows what we need. And we see his mercy to remove that very thing. And so we see that salvation is according to his mercy. We have this problem. We cannot commune with God because of our sin. What does he do? He ex expiates it. He takes our sin away. There's the wrath of God that we're under. What does Christ do when he dies upon Calvary's tree? He removes that wrath. For what reason? that we can dwell with God. Here's our problem. Here's our issue. And God, who is rich in mercy, dispels that. And he does what? He saves us. Again, this is the main verb of this long sentence. He saves us. We don't save ourselves. Notice Paul puts himself in that camp. He saved me. He saved you. 
because he is gracious and because he is good. Christ's coming has implications for those in Christ even saved after he ascends. Even though Christ in his human nature is at the right hand of God the Father, that doesn't mean he's still not operating. That doesn't mean he's still not uh, working by way of the Holy Spirit to bring his people in. Again, as you read the book of Acts, we, uh, Luke records and he says, uh, we, uh, before I recorded of all that Christ began to do and to teach, referring to Luke, began to do and to teach. That means the rest of the book of Acts, even though Christ is at the right hand, he's still doing, isn't he? He's still teaching. That has implications for us. As the gospel goes forth, everything that we read here, the accomplishment of Christ, he applies those benefits to his elect. He applies those benefits to his people in time and space, and we'll unpack some of those benefits, probably more under the second point, but we're going to start a little bit under this first point here. It's what Christ has done and how he applies that. Notice he goes on to talk about and starts into how he does so. So he saves us because of Christ and his finished work through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. You see, we believe in the Trinity, don't we? And we believe in the missions of the Son and Holy Spirit. And this is where we see the mission of the uh, third person, the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, and how he operates in time and space for a specific purpose, namely to take what Christ has done and apply it. And so we see through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So let's first look at that washing of regeneration. Certainly the idea of the uh, ritual washings from the Old Testament are in view. That is the cleansing of the people, the cleansing of things that were filthy. But now we have been washed. Now we've been cleansed. Now we have taken that filthy garment and that has been removed. The filthiness that was upon us has been cleansed. So it is this idea of washing. And perhaps it carries the idea of the washing uh, of baptism. Because some people can be torn. Is it a spiritual washing? Is it baptism? I say both. I think the two go hand in hand here. Now, don't freak out. I'm just going to explain myself. The washing of regeneration. There's other language in the scriptures that make us sound squeamish. That it sounds like a Roman Catholic view of baptism. Baptism is medicine. You baptize and all of a sudden you're saved. It's like done. It doesn't matter. Your profession of faith is a dink and you're all of a sudden saved. That is not what I'm saying here. Acts chapter 22, verse 16. As Paul recounts his conversion, as Paul recounts the salvation of God in him, he is speaking to the Jews here. And he says something very interesting as he recounts that, or Luke uh, records this specifically in this place. Because remember, it's not just Acts 9. There's also Acts 22 uh, and Acts 26 as well, where Paul's conversion is recounted. But verse 16, this is God speaking to Paul by way of Ananias. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized. 
and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. See, there's an important connection between the sign and the thing that it signifies. We are not washed because of baptism. We are washed because of the work of the Holy Spirit. But baptism is that outward sign of that inward work. That is, there is this sacramental union of that ordinance where we see so much that it, uh, it is a means of grace, even for the people watching the one being baptized, because it signifies, and there's a clear picture of the dying and rising again. There's a clear picture of the cleansing that has happened because of the work of the Holy Spirit, the washing of regeneration. Because regeneration is a work of God. It is something that happens in the heart by God. He gives that new heart. He removes that heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. It is that heart surgery, that heavenly heart surgery that is done. And when someone believes, the only way someone can believe is that that has to happen first. There has to be that heart surgery to happen. There has to be that life that is given. Otherwise, we are dead. And that's why baptism is an important ordinance. That's why it's important if you are not baptized to consider it, because it really is an outward sign of the inward work, and not to mention God, Christ, does command it in Matthew chapter 28. I do not think if a true believer dies without being baptized, they're going to hell. I do not believe that because we're not Roman Catholic. But it is still an exhortation. It is still an outward sign of that inward work. And certainly we see God stooping to our nature with both of the ordinances in baptism and the Lord's Supper. So the Bible does sound squeamish in those ways. But when we consider the theology, when we consider the rest of Scripture, baptism is a blessed thing in its understanding and what it is. I think one writer says, God does, does not mock us with empty figures, but his own power inwardly accomplishes what he exhibits by an external sign. The washing of regeneration. We have been washed, we have been cleansed by the Holy Spirit. And he does go on to connect it further with the Holy Spirit and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We have had this new life implanted in us by the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. If you wish to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. It is a divine passive. Only God can do that very thing. And when we consider salvation, when we consider a conversion, the life of individual people, what we're talking about here is the common things that happen to all. How we're saved or the means by which God brings us to these, uh, gives us these things can be different. Again, we've talked about sunrise and sunburst. Some people, they don't know the day that they were saved, but we know that we're saved. For some people, they know that day. Perhaps it was coming to church. Perhaps it was listening to something on the internet. Perhaps it's talking with a friend. But all the benefits that are applied by Christ are the same. And so what happens is, those who are chosen before the foundation of the world, God has appointed a time in their life when he's going to regenerate them. And so what happens is he's going to effectually call them as the gospel goes forth and the spirit then works in their hearts to give them that blessed new life. How does he save us? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, this imparting of a new spirit. And I do 
I think, Ezekiel 36. Perhaps it's not necessarily in the background, although it very well could be. But certainly the ideas are present in Ezekiel 36. I just talked about the implanting of a new heart. That comes from the prophecy of Ezekiel 36. But it is connected with washing. Verse 25. As God prophesies, Ezekiel prophesies about the renewal that shall come. He says in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, out of, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Notice cleansing and the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand. This cleansing, the Spirit does cleanse us. The Spirit is the one who gives us that new life. The renewing of the Holy Spirit that that has been given to us. And so it is what the Spirit does, how he applies those benefits. And notice we see with verse 6 how it is how he's poured out. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus, the right hand of God the Father, and his ascension, he needed to ascend so that the Spirit would be poured out. And so the Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, this full experience that happens, this promise of the the agent of new creation now being poured out. He has come, does so in a redemptive historical way. The gospel spreads to the ends of the earth, signifies Christ's ascension, and the fact that the Spirit is poured out signifies Christ reigns. We don't always think about that, do we? Christ still reigns on high. We look at the world around us and we start to freak out and we go, what's happening? Christ still reigns on high. And so it's a general recognition of the benefit of the Spirit poured out. Well, then Paul applies it and gives it personal significance, doesn't he? He saved us through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus, our Savior. And notice again, it's triune, the Father pouring out. Certainly Jesus pours out as well, but the Father pours out. It is through the accomplished work of the Son, and the one being poured out is the Holy Spirit, and he is the one who indwells every one of his people. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have the agent of new creation who indwells you even now. It gives us that personal significance of what God has done in Christ Jesus, how we are the ones who have the Holy Spirit. Don't let anybody say a Reformed people are not a people of the Holy Spirit. Just because we don't tongue talk and just because we don't do miracles and that sort of stuff doesn't mean we're not a people of the Spirit. Because what is the Spirit doing? The Spirit changes hearts. The Spirit gives new life. The Spirit works and implants that principle within us that we have that new life in Christ Jesus. Still have the remnants of the old man on this side of heaven, but if you're in Christ, you are the new man by the Holy Spirit. And that's why it's important, dear brethren, to know who you are and consider God's love for you in Christ Jesus there is still this ongoing significance of Christ's completed work. 
as a sinner is saved, as they're regenerated, as they're changed, we see the spirit or the, 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 the benefits of Christ being poured out and Christ still engaging in his work based upon the completion of his earthly ministry and the completion of his once for all sacrifice. He's now just applying the benefits. You're a sinner. You need Christ. You need to look to him, find salvation in him, believe upon him. That's my call to you. But if you are a believer, be encouraged. God does love you, and you do have the Holy Spirit. And again, unbeliever, you see, as we see in verse 3, Christians were once like you, dead in their trespasses and sins, disobedient, foolish, deceived, serving various things. What is the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the fact that Christ has saved them and given them new life. We're no better than any, anyone. We're no better than any person, but Christ is good to cleanse, to change. He gives riches beyond belief. He gives cleansing of heart. He, sa he saves. That is what Christ does for an undeserving people. And my exhortation to you is to believe upon him. If you believe upon him, you shall be saved. If you look to him, you shall be washed and you shall be cleansed of all your filth and you shall have life everlasting in the Savior. Christians were once like you, but God who is rich in mercy, he saved them. Look to Christ because he is gracious and good and he is the one who saves his people from their sins. So that is the God who saves in verses four through six. Let's then look secondly at what we receive in verses 7 and 8. What we receive and then really how we live in light of that. But notice verse 7. We receive heirs, uh, we, re we are heirs of eternal life. That having been justified by his grace. So again, another spiritual benefit. So again, when it comes to salvation... Called, regenerated, or sorry, elect, called. And what happen, happens when we have that new life principle, I believe what I'm about to say all happens at once. New heart, we believe by faith, we turn from our sin, which is repentance, change of mind concerning that sin. And then at that moment when we believe, we are justified, adopted, and sanctified. It all happens all at once. That is what happens. And then the rest of our Christian life is a life of sanctification. And these are, again, all the benefits that Christ has purchased. We need a new heart because we're dead. He makes us alive. We once had a poor view of sin. He gives us the gift of repentance to change our mind concerning that sin. We once uh, did not believe, but now he gives us the gift of faith that we look to Christ and we believe. We were once guilty. Now we're justified. That's what justification does for us. We were legally unrighteous before God most high. Now we're justified. What does sanctification do? We were corrupt. And what's sanctification doing? It is ironing out all of the remaining corruption. We are set apart. We are good. We are sanctified. Uh, but we are being sanctified as well. With All that corruption is being rooted out. We need to be preserved to the end because life is hard. Perseverance of the saints. God preserves us. And we need a new body. And that is the resurrected body. That is salvation. That is the completeness of salvation. That is the benefits of salvation. 
All of those things that are there, it's called the order of salvation for a reason. And the one he's hitting here, but also uh, he's hitting two here, really. Actually, he's hitting three here. Sorry, I forgot adoption in there because adoption is there as well. He's hitting justification, adoption, and glorification. And so notice justification, that having been justified by his grace. So in the order of salvation, there is an order to it. Justification precedes adoption. <laughs> and so we see that we are declared righteous. It is an imputed righteousness, not an infused righteousness with justification, an imputed, a transferred one. It's legal. We once were in debt. We once had an issue. We once didn't have our righteousness. That is that we didn't have any righteousness. That is now transferred over in imputation. So again, Paul has this here. We have a righteousness that is not our own. He spends a lot of time in Romans dealing with that. And so because of that, justification then pre, uh, precedes adoption. So that having been justified by his grace, we should what? Become heirs. We were once orphans and without an inheritance. We were once without a father. And now what do we have as heirs, as adopted sons of God? We have access to the Father. We have communion with the Father. And we have an inheritance that is unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. So just to recap, when we're saved, when we are converted, when we believe, we are regenerated. We are given the gifts of repentance and faith. We are justified, adopted, and the life of sanctification begins. We are heirs because of what God has done. And that's why even in Ephesians, Paul has said that we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of that. The Holy Spirit is poured out. There's a down payment until we receive it in full when Christ comes again. So we're justified, we're adopted, and then notice, according to the hope of eternal life. There is something that we possess in part now but we have, we're awaiting its fullness. Justification gives us the title to heaven. Sanctification prepares us for heaven. That's what J.C. Ryle said. That is that when we get to heaven, uh, the reason we'll get to heaven is because of Christ's righteousness and we are justified. Sanctification just prepares us for that. Preparing us for that. Our standing does not change. You still struggle with sin. God's people will struggle with sin. That's just part and parcel of this fallen world. But Christ's righteousness is sufficient. Our works never contribute to that title. We have it already. It is ours, and it shall never be taken away. And the Christian life just prepares us for receiving it in its full. The blessedness of dwelling with God and being with him forever, looking to the life of the world to come. Chapter 2, verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people who are zealous for good works. Justified, adopted, we are all those things now, and we have this hope of eternal life, which we shall receive in its full. We participate in part, but we wait for its fullness when Christ comes again. So what then ought we to do as we wait? Well, we have to live our lives and live our lives in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God. And that's what we see in verse 8. This is a faithful saying. 
You, this goes back with what we've seen in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Everything that's come before. This is a faithful saying. It's easy to forget in this section that the context is one of exhortation. We must treat all men with humility, including those outside the church. He wants a people that are zealous for good works and not like the false teachers. We must affirm these things constantly. We can speak confidently of these things. Here's what Christ has done. Here are the benefits that he's given. We have the Holy Spirit. So what then what ought we to do? Well, we ought to maintain these good works because it's a benefit for us and it's a benefit for the world. <laughs> it's ought to be honoring to God, but it really ought to be a benefit for the world. Now, good works are defined as God has defined them. So I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. Now, the immediate context is chapter 3, verse 1. Be subject to rulers and authorities unless they go against God's word to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men, to defer, to consider, to hold our tongues, to be quick to listen and slow to speak. All those things are in view. That is how we maintain good works. But not only that, I do believe chapter 2 is all about good works, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Again, doctrine should then be adorned with the life that we live. The doctrine that we hear should give us the strength and nourishment that we need and the understanding for how we ought to live. And so we see, you know, various... Um, it's various, talking about various genders and various ages for how people ought to act. And he says in chapter 2, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Share the truth, and then here's how you live. Well, old men be sober. Uh, older women, likewise, so they be reverent in behavior, not slanders, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they admonish the young women to love their husbands. Now transitioning to the young ladies to love their children, to be discreet, to be chaste, to be obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. The life that we live, dear brethren, is an example, isn't it? We live in light of the gospel. We adorn the gospel with the life that we live. Now, we won't do this perfectly. So when you struggle and when you don't do these things, ask God for forgiveness and pray these things back to God and ask him for help with this. Verse 6, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern in doctrine, integrity, reverence, sound speech. All those things are involved. And then verse 9, this is, I think this application goes with the jobs that we have today. Exhorting bondservants to be obedient to their own masters, to be well-pleasing in all things, not answering back, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity. You know what not pilfering means? Just doing your job when the boss sees you. That is, you work hard when nobody's watching, when nobody's looking. Why? Because we have been redeemed. Because God is gracious and good, we ought then to work hard in the jobs that we have. But notice verse 10 further, that they may adorn the doctrine of God 
our Savior in all things. Again, doctrine and practice go hand in hand. If you have poor doctrine, you are going to have poor practice. If you have right doctrine, sometimes we can still have poor practice. But right doctrine must precede right practice. That's why we preach doctrine. That's why we preach the truth, because I know, I know personally, I know I've seen it in the lives of others, when people are filling their minds with sound doctrine and God things, uh, good things, God things and good things, God is what? He is causing them to grow. He is encouraging them. He's building them up. He's nourishing them in the word of God. So that is the good works. That is the life we ought to live. Not saying there aren't times to avoid certain things in verse 9. Not saying there aren't times to reject divisive men. That is engaging in good works, especially as a pastor who must do his job accordingly. But for all of us, we see we ought to maintain good works based upon what Christ has done for us in the gospel. That's why the gospel always has application for the people of God. We're struggling with sins There's mercy and forgiveness in Christ. If you want to know how to live a godly life, well, we do so in light of what Christ has done for us uh, as he lived, died, and rose again. And the hope is, the benefit is for all. At the end of verse 8, these things are good and profitable to men, not just unbelievers, but to all. Wouldn't it be a good Christian witness if Christians were the hardest working before their unbelieving boss? Wouldn't that be a good thing? See, brethren, it shouldn't be the case that if you were a believer and the unbelievers are outworking you. I'm sorry to say it like that, but that ought to be the case where you ought to work harder than all because you have been redeemed in Christ Jesus and you are honoring God by honoring your boss. It's amazing how all of our life, whatever we do, whether word or deed, really is all to the glory of God most high. Not pilfering, not talking back, not speaking back, but adorning the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Fairbairn says it denotes the application of earnest and continued thought, a careful striving of soul in this direction that the belief in the doctrines of the gospel should be substantiated by a steady performance of its commanded duties. That is the life that we live. That is God's plan for your life, dear brethren. Honor God, fear God, keep his commandments. That is the life we are to live in this fallen world. Now, I want to remind everybody again that there is mercy and forgiveness in Christ. Because the reality is we cannot keep all of these things in our own strength. We would not be able to do so. We can pray to God when we sin, when we pilfer, when we, don't, when we uh, talk back. We need to ask God for mercy and forgiveness. When we have not been loving, when, we have not, when we've been rude or unkind, or incon- ask for forgiveness. We ought to do that. We ought to be ready to hear that and ready to ask for forgiveness when we do such things. But mainly ask forgiveness from Christ. And you know what he's going to do? He is going to forgive you because he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And again, if you are not in Christ, you are dead. You are not alive. You have all these problems. You are guilty. You are corrupt. You are orphans. You, are, you don't know what sin is. You don't know where salvation... I pray that God changes your heart. 
pray that God gives you new life. I pray that you see your sin and see your ways. And I pray that you believe upon Christ and find mercy in him. Why? Because God, who is rich in mercy, according to his mercy, he saved us. That is, he saved sinners because he is kind and he is loving. Well, let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we are thankful for your so great salvation that is in Christ Jesus, and we're thankful for your wisdom in it, where we see the sacrifice of the God-man on Calvary's tree. We know that man sinned against you, and we needed man to earn the way. We know that that sacrifice needed to be perfect, and only you are perfect, and so we are thankful for this, and thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for what it means. And we're also thankful for the benefits that Christ has purchased for us. Thank you for uh, that we are no longer guilty. Thank you that you are dealing with our corruption. Thank you that you preserve us and keep us. Thank you for the promise of the heavenly body because Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Thank you that you've given us a new heart, that you've washed us and cleansed us in the blood of Christ. Thank you for baptism. Thank you for the Lord's Supper. Thank you for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There are all these benefits that we have seen today, and we pray that it would cause us to honor you, to sing praises to your name, but in our life that we would praise you in all that we do, and that we would do so according to your ways. Again, please forgive us for the many, many times that we fail. We know that we are not righteous in and of ourselves, but we are righteous because of what you've done for us, and we ask and pray that we would honor you in all that we do. And we pray if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them, please give them new life, and we are thankful that you are the God who is mighty to save. So help us now as we go into the world, help us in whatever task you have for us, that we would adorn the gospel with the life that we live, and we pray these things in the name of Christ.